Oh, hello and welcome to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and today we're going to be talking about something very much in the news at the moment, the tax and benefit system, and in particular, its role in redistribution. I'm delighted to be joined today by Charlie Pickles, who's the director of the Reform Think Tank and also a member of the Social Security Advisory Committee, and Tom Waters, who's a senior economist at the IFS who spends his life working on issues of taxes and benefits. Now, clearly, we've just had a huge uh, mini-budget or maxi-budget, which has done a lot to change the structure of the personal tax system, or at least to take it back to where it was uh, a year ago. Um, And we're having quite a lot of conversations now about whether benefits will rise even in line with prices next year as the government looks to find a way of balancing the books. So today I hope we'll get into a bit of a discussion on how the redistribution within the tax and benefit system currently works and uh, how it's changed over time and what we might want to do to make it better or indeed less redistributive if that's what we want to achieve. So, Tom, let's start with you. Can you just give us a sense of the scale of the tax and benefit system in the UK, particularly as it affects households? How much are we paying and how much are we getting back? So on the tax side, in total, when we look across all taxes, something in the order of four in every £10 of national income the government takes uh, in taxes. Now, some of that, of course, is not for benefits. Most of it is not for benefits. Most of it goes in things like schools and hospitals and defence and so on. Uh, But when we look just at benefits, something like £220 billion a year uh, is spent on benefits. That includes uh, the state pension um, as well as working age benefits, which people might be familiar with, uh, like universal credit. So in total, we're talking about um, pretty pretty significant um, sums of money uh, moving about uh, through the tax and benefit system. And that pensions and benefits, what's that, about a quarter of public spending? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so about a quarter of everything that government spends is essentially money that's taken directly from us in one way or another uh, and given uh, and given back to us. Um, and how, how important is all of this in redistributing things between people? I mean, Charlie, what's your uh, – how, how do you describe just kind of how big a job taxes and benefits do in redistribution? I mean, they do a, a very big job, but I think it's important to note that within that very large figure that we just heard of about the 220 billion, um, I think about half of it, correct me if I'm wrong, is pensions, of course, which I think a lot of people would challenge the idea that that's redistribution because, of course, most people feel they're paying into the system and then they're getting something back. But if you look at the the rest of that, so the, the roughly half um, uh, that is going in what I suppose we would call social security benefits, the traditional welfare side of stuff, um, then that is highly uh, redistributive um, and actually has become more so, I think, if you think about the fact that it's become increasingly dependent on a means test. Um, so, you know, under the coalition, uh, we saw certain kind of what were deemed middle class benefits uh, being taken away or reduced. So um, we've seen increasingly the benefit system, the welfare system becoming something which is for low income households, either those who don't have any income themselves or, or very low incomes uh, from work. So it plays a huge role in doing that. And hopefully we might get into whether that's a good thing or whether it could be changed. Absolutely. And you make two really important points there. One is that uh, a lot of the 
overall benefits bill, including pensions, is really about redistributing from us when we're young to us when we're old. Obviously, if you look today, it looks like the young people are paying for the old people, but the young people will one day be old. And so a big fraction of this redistribution is actually from me today to my older self. Uh, but a large, another large fraction, as you say, is directly to people on low incomes. Though, Tom, I think it's also fair to say that quite a lot of people on low incomes now weren't necessarily on low incomes yesterday and won't necessarily be on low incomes tomorrow. So there's redistribution across their life as well. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to think about redistribution in these two dimensions, redistribution across the lifetime for a given person and then redistribution be between different people. Uh, and if, if, if you sort of try and tease apart these two parts of the system, um, some pretty large fraction of it um, is about redistributing within a single person's uh, lifetime, uh, rather than kind of reducing overall, if you like, lifetime inequality by redistributing between people. And if we look at the um, the working age bit of this, um, as Charlie's just said, the a large part of that, I mean, the vast bulk of that now actually is means-tested benefits. Now, if we look back 40, 50 years ago, the large bulk of it would have been quite different. It would have been what uh, much closer to what uh, Beveridge was thinking about back in the 1940s, which was a social insurance system. You pay in and then you get out if you're unemployed or if you're sick or if you're retired, irrespective of income. So actually that trend has been going up uh, a, a lot longer than just the coalition government, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It used to be that a large fraction of benefits were these so-called contributory benefits. They made up most, in fact, most of benefit spending if we went back to, say, the late 70s, uh, where it would typically be you pay in um, uh, whilst you're working, you lose your job, and then you get an unemployment benefit um, in, in sort of in return. And that that part of the system has, has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. I think I'm right in saying it now only counts for about 8% of benefits. Um, and so I think, yeah, that, you know, that, that, that reflects a choice that governments have made that to, to try and distribute money more towards those who are poor today and who, you know, perhaps need help right now. And the best way of getting money to people who are poor today is to use the means-tested means benefit system because that's targeting specific on those with low incomes, uh, rather than kind of thinking about this slightly longer term contributory element where you're giving cash to those who have paid in a bit more in, in the past. You can see the logic of that, can't you? But uh, what's the? there are downsides as well. You can, and there are downsides. I think there's one other thing that I'd want to add in, in terms of understanding those trends that we've seen over the, the past few decades which is also that certain parts of the system have become incredibly expensive, um, which has forced some of those decisions around targeting at, at you know, the at those with the sort of really kind of quite deep need for support. So if you think about how much, for example, goes on housing support, so I don't know, just over three decades ago, it was about, I think, a third or something like that of what we spend today on, on housing. Um, if you think about disability benefits, huge increases in the expenditure support disabled people. And so as those costs have increased, obviously, you can either decide to keep you know, ever growing the welfare budget, um, much like we're doing with the health budget, uh, or you have to make decisions about where you want to put that money. And, and that's another of, I think, the, the reasons that we've seen the kind of death of contributory principle uh, and the shift towards means testing within that. And I think that's 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 also a set of policy decisions, as, as we heard around how you support people. And so the way in which you're uh, redistributing income, you know, where do you want to, which parts of people's lives do you want to support? 
and yeah, I'd, I'd say kind of related to that is what, what that kind of underlines is how like the, the benefit system part of what it's doing is patching up, if you like, wider problems. So obviously if we had, if we could magically make people much healthier, that would reduce spending on disability benefits. Or uh, if if um, if we could get rents down, that would reduce spending on, on housing benefits. And so, yeah, part some of these, these big pressures in housing and disability in particular, we've seen over decades reflecting the fact that there's these wider trends in society, which, um, which the government then tries to kind of patch up through the welfare system. And conversely, um, on that point about health, if we had healthier people, we would spend less. Possibly if we spent a bit more to support people, we might have healthier people as well. So there's a, there's kind of there's two sides, I think, to that coin. You know, we, we presumably will go on, um, as Paul, you said at the start, to talk about um, uprating benefits. But, but you know, the level of benefits for some people is incredibly low and that has a direct impact on their health, which then impacts their ability to work and potentially to be net contributors to the economy rather than um, um, needing to be dependent on benefits. So I think it's quite a complicated picture when you think about whether um, the way we re redistribute money uh, is actually being effective or, or in some ways um, might even be being counterproductive in the model that we've got. Yeah, I think that's really um, interesting. And it really speaks to uh, another issue, which is about who the people are who are getting these benefits. I think it is still very much in the public mind that benefits are for unemployed people. And I think it's true to say that only a tiny fraction of benefits actually go to people who are actually unemployed. That, that's exactly right. And and actually, um, we've had some unhelpful journalists recently uh, saying, um, kind of lumping everybody together, essentially, and saying we've got, you know, this, whatever it is, 5 million people who are out of work that should be in work. But, but actually... You're right. Most of those people, or a majority of those people, are actually people with um, disabilities or or an illness, um, and they're not only some way from the labour market, but actually they're not required even to be looking for work. Um, you know, we we the system essentially says no, we are parking you on benefits, and and that that's what we're doing. And then you have people with, for example, a lone parent with very young children with caring responsibilities who again are not required to look for work and so on aren't unemployed. And actually probably the most striking thing, um, which I think people are becoming slightly more aware of um, in policy circles and, and amongst politicians, is that around 40% of the, the universal credit um, caseload are actually people who are in work on low earnings. And again, a, a complete, I mean, a huge difference to where we were 30, 40 years ago, the increase in the number of people in work on benefits, partly because the benefit system is a lot more generous than it was certainly before 1997, and also very big increases in the number of people with disabilities. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 particularly the tax credit reforms around the turn of the millennium were targeted at getting, getting money towards people who are on low incomes, but not, not just those who are out of work, but those who are in work um, on, on low incomes as well. And, and in some cases, trying to kind of improve their financial incentives uh, strengthen their financial incentives to um, to to get into work, and so that has led to this this shift, um, kind of contemporaneously with and related to this shift to means testing, uh, this shift for, um, to target more and more towards those who are in work. So uh, it's an interesting it's, it's an interesting thought experiment. I mean, uh, before nineteen ninety seven. There was this little benefit called family credit, which um, involved, I think, just a billion or two going to people um, in work. We've now got tens of billions going in tax credits, universal credit to 
people in work. Charlie, can, can, can we imagine a world in which we went back to that less generous welfare state where we actually weren't paying so much to so many people in work? That would save if you would take if you would take the in work part of the current system back to where it was twenty five years ago, you could fix a big part of the chancellor's fiscal hole. You could. Uh, yes. Uh, politically, I think that would be challenging. Is that is that the right word to, to say? Um, in all seriousness, though, we, we, we have a huge number of people who are in very low paid work. Um, and so, yes, you could say, well, that's not the state's responsibility. Um, it's not other taxpayers' responsibility to uh, top up that income. But as we were saying earlier, there are all sorts of knock-on effects uh, within the you know, public services, within the kind of, you know, the broader sense of the redistributive system where you would start picking up those costs. So, for example, someone who, which we're seeing at the moment, uh, even with uh, the sort of income top-ups in place, uh, who can't make ends meet, who are struggling, the anxiety, the stress, the knock-on health impacts, you're probably more likely to then fall out of work and be entirely dependent on benefits as well as no longer paying if you were paying some taxes or national insurance. So um, I think you would, it wouldn't be as simple as saying we'd just take off this X billion pounds, and what is it? Probably something in the region of 30 billion, I would guess, uh, for the equivalent of tax credits or tax credits and the equivalent in UC. Um, you would, st- some of that, you would put back into the system via other costs. But there's also surely a moral uh, question here. I don't know if I'm allowed to, to say that in a, in a, in a very uh, uh, sort of you know, IFS economics focused discussion. But, um, but I think, you know, the mark of surely the mark of a compassionate society has to be. Um, the ability to support those who are in challenging, vulnerable situations. And, you know, I think it's even for those who believe that, you know, the welfare state is bloated uh, or, you know, there should be more people kind of doing more hours or, or going back to work. This particular group of people, they are working and it may be that they can't work more hours or they can't get a better paid job in their local area. So they're doing the very thing that the system wants them to do, which is to go out and work in really low paid, probably not particularly secure maybe enjoyable but probably for a lot of people not particularly enjoyable you know you go out because you have to make some money because you you know need to pay your bills and then we're going to turn around to them and say oh and despite the fact you're doing the the right thing we're no longer going to give you a bit of extra income so that you can really meet those uh costs that you've got because let's face it none of these people are living in a life of luxury they are still struggling even with that top up so I'd like to think that we would have the compassion to say, actually, that's that's not a bad thing to to redistribute some of that money because some of us have been fortunate enough to, you know, have a better education, maybe a better experience in early years, you know, to work in an area which society has deemed to be more valuable in monetary terms because we happen to be able to work in that and say, you know what, I'm I'm happy to pay some of my taxes towards someone who's been less fortunate. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it kind of... As you say, it's obviously a moral question. So narrowly on the economics, um, <laughs> there's, there's back, so much back to on say. Point. Yeah, <laughs> back to message. Um, so no, I think yeah, it, it, get, it does exactly get to what do you think the point of the welfare state is, and and you know if you think the point of it is to stop people falling into um, kind of severe um, severe case of low living standards and. Um, uh, you know, really being able to uh, uh, not not being able to afford the the very basics, 
then you might focus more on the kind of the unemployment, the, the disability sort of side of things. On the other hand, you think actually part of what the welfare state is trying to do is is just to provide a, a better a better standard of living to people who aren't, you know, on the brink of homelessness but aren't enjoying uh, particularly um, uh, are still enjoying quite low living standards. Um, and yeah, I think obviously where you come down that is partly is partly a political decision. I think it's notable that there's been a bit of a shift away from talking about social security towards talking about benefits or welfare. And to some extent that reflects that, because if you think of focusing on unemployment and disability, it's kind of security against the possibility that you might lose your job or you might become seriously unwell, as opposed to a perhaps more permanent or at least at least much longer lasting arrangement where you are in work and you're you're going to work for many years but getting that kind of top up regularly it's less of kind of a security arrangement more of um more of that top up to to low pay and it is worth i think reflecting on the fact that um those households that um make up households in poverty have also shifted quite a lot over the past few decades um even longer and quite a significant proportion are actually in work. So these are families where there is at least one person in work, often not a second earner. And that's another conversation about the benefit system and perhaps how to incentivize that. But, you know, a very large chunk of, of the families in poverty are in work in poverty. And therefore, it's it's I don't think it's even quite as simple as saying, you know, is this about security? Great point as it is, you know, the, these families don't have security, you know, they can't make ends meet without the top ups. And, you know, we should have a big conversation about genuinely reformist uh, policies, which we're definitely not having at the moment, but we should have that about what would it take to upskill people? You know, what would it take to have better quality housing, you know, and to lower some of those housing costs? You know, what would it take to really boost life chances for some of these, you know, young people who are growing up in intergenerationally poor households, but we're not doing that. And so in the meantime, the least we can do is make sure that people can heat their homes and feed their children. So what you're describing is a system, as as, as Tom said earlier, where the social security system, the welfare system is picking up the pieces of all sorts of problems Absolutely. in society, poor health, unemployment, um, high housing costs, all, all of those sorts of things. Uh, what, what, would, what would you put on top of that in order to achieve the sorts of things that you're talking about to improve more broadly people's uh, capacity, as it were, to um, do more for themselves, I think is in a sense what you're suggesting. So I think you need a, a system that um, A, works with the grain of human behavior um, and uh, supports people to achieve the things they want to do. And I think if you take, for example, um, the very large part of the benefit cohort, to use a very impersonal phrase, uh, which is disabled people, actually the system itself is almost designed to trap them on benefits and not particularly generous benefits. So I think you would want to look at um, how can we have a system that actually offers the sort of support, whether that's employment support, whether it's skill support, whether it's actually timely mental health, because uh, we know that the growing proportion of those who are on disability, out-of-work disability benefits are, are there for mental health reasons uh, and they can't access support um, at the moment. So think about how you can do that you know, on housing, um, again, IFS has done brilliant work on this, showing um, the, the shift in tenure of housing. Actually, if we got on and, you know, I mean, gosh, how many people say this almost on a daily basis, but we actually got on 
with building high quality social housing, we wouldn't be spending so much. And actually, people wouldn't be struggling to meet the private rental costs because mostly the benefit system doesn't even really cover the, the you know the housing bit you get from your benefits doesn't really cover the housing costs for people in the private rental market but ultimately it is it's investing in people isn't it it's investing in making sure that people can have that mental health support that they can access good quality education just because you're from a poorer background doesn't mean you have to go to a bad school you know it's it's, it's all those sorts of things which are other ways we redistribute income so when when people um a certain person in particular uh, says, you know, that the, the tax system isn't about redistribution. Of course, it shouldn't just be about redistribution. In fact, if it was, we would end up with worse public services because we disincentivize uh, enterprise, wouldn't we? So, of course, you don't want it to be just about that. But fundamentally, some of it has to be about that. But we should think about that, not just about the benefit system and about can we give an extra pound to this household. We should think about it in the broader sense, to again, quote, quote our new PM, um, which is about all of the public services that go into enabling people to reach their potential. And what we've ended up with, I, I think, is the implication of what you're saying is a almost a pared-back state that is doing just enough to prevent poverty and to give people the help once they've fallen through all the other safety nets, but not enough to support them more broadly. Now, obviously, the concern from the Chancellor's point of view is what you're suggesting sounds, at least in the short run, like it'd be rather more expensive than we've got what we've got at the moment. Well, I hear we can just borrow. So it's, oh, that's it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just um, wanted to just uh, spend a couple of minutes on this big issue of disability benefits and incapacity uh, benefits, because it's one of the w- w- one of the areas where spending has been ever upwards despite really hard efforts by government to push it down and indeed all sorts of um, all sorts of reports of people who are really very sick indeed not being um, able to get on to the benefits. Tom, what, what, what do we know about, uh, and let's distinguish for the listeners the, the incapacity benefits from the disability benefits, what do we know about what's happened there and in particular why we seem to have this ever-increasing number of people who are dependent on these benefits? Yeah, so de- definitionally, um, incapacity benefits are benefits for those who are unwell to the extent that they can't work. Uh, and disability benefits are benefits for people who have higher living costs because of their disability. So they might need help with things like getting dressed or preparing meals, or they might need help with getting around, um, you know, might need a wheelchair or something like that. So in the UK, we have these two two really quite distinct um, sets of benefits to deal with this. And the capacity benefits that they're targeted basically are those who who can't who are, who are out of work. And disability benefits are, um, are are not means tested at all. And you could be in work, you could have you know be on a million pounds a year in principle and still be getting disability benefits. In reality, um, a pretty substantial majority of those who get these disability benefits are are not in work, but they, they aren't actually formally means tested. Um, and we have seen this shift, um, as Charlie was saying, towards um, uh, uh, mental health reasons both in both sets of benefits um, as the, the main reason why people are, are becoming eligible for them. On disability benefits, we did some research on this recently, and it's getting on for 
uh, 50% of uh, claimants getting it for uh, for mental health or sort of social behavioural um, uh, reasons, and that's that's up from something like a, a quarter, I think, two two decades ago. And so, in it, and it really accounts for almost all of the rise in the uh, in the number of people on it. And I think that yeah, there is a. It is interesting how this interacts with policy, because back in twenty back in twenty thirteen, the government implemented this new disability benefit called personal dependence payment, which was to replace the old one, disability living allowance. And the aim was it would um, uh, people would be reassessed more frequently, and they would be assessed under a different uh, different kind of scheme, and uh, it would save the government twenty percent of the disability benefits bill. Uh, but if you actually just sort of look at what happened to disability benefits since then, spending has just gone up. And actually, you can just kind of see us, uh, if you look at the chart, it's sort of steadily going up until 2013 when the reform happens. And then it just starts going up faster. Um, and so it's, it's, it's hard to say absolutely certainly what the effect of the reform was. But visually, it looks like, if anything, it raised um, uh, spending on disability benefits. And I think, yeah, it, it, it does... It is a real challenge because this is even when the government explicitly tried to reduce spending, they, it basically looks like that was unsuccessful. And yet still at the same time, as you were saying, Paul, there's we hear stories of people who seem pretty seriously unwell and for one reason or another don't get awarded um, the benefits. And so it, it does just look like an incredibly difficult um, policy area where the government's in this sort of strange... Um, position of spending loads of money on it and increasingly more on it, but but still having these kinds of outcomes, which um, which, which seem to have clearly gone clearly gone the wrong way. I guess you could have, um, and people from different perspectives might have different responses to what you've just said. One would be, um, this is an indication of a serious failure in society. More and more people are ill, and more and more people are. Are mentally ill and that's forcing higher uh, benefit payments and we need to do that i suppose uh, others might say well look we're, we're, we're clearly getting better off and, and healthier and you're talking about increases in the number of people who say they've got mental health problems um shouldn't we just be really checking much harder that they really do have these problems are we really all that much less mentally well than we were 10 20 30 years ago and maybe the problems with the administration I don't know, Charlie, whether you have a view on which of those is true or whether there's an element of truth in both. I think, as Tom pointed out, the the, the makeup of those and how that of the the, the people who are um, actually both, as you say, on on the incapacity, the, the kind of income replacement part, and then the the disability benefits, the extra costs part of the system, the, the makeup has tra- changed dramatically. And um, again, as Tom said, the fact that we have half. Uh, roughly half, we're getting on for half in each of those that are for mental health. And and I think pe- people, when you think of mental health, you, you think, it, it, and the fact that you're, you know, reliant on benefits for a mental health reason, I think people think that must be quite an extreme um, mental health problem. Um, you might think of someone with a, you know, profound learning disability uh, or someone who, who suffers from maybe, you know, severe schizophrenia or, or something like that. Actually, the majority of these people are in a category which is, is again, exactly as Tom said, is effectively anxiety and depression. Um, and and the reason I point that out and the reason I think it falls somewhere between for what you were describing is that we should be, you know, mental health and depression on the whole are things that can be treated or people can be supported to live with. 
loads of people who have depression or or anxiety are in work and have coping mechanisms to deal with that. So I think there definitely is something about saying, what is it that we're failing to do as a society that means that, I mean, huge numbers of people are, and it really is writing people off, you know, very few people. It's something like 2% of people who who end up on incapacity-related benefits ever leave them. I mean, you know, we really are writing off thousands of people and talent that could be contributing, parking them on benefits, in part because we're failing to prevent people from developing these, or at least often start off as kind of mild to moderate conditions. I mean, we don't, we probably don't want to get into the NHS and wait times here, but, you know, how many people, people listening to this podcast have themselves or a loved one or a friend who's tried to access, you know, pretty basic mental health support services and can't, you know, all of these contribute to people's mental health deteriorating and then them ending up on benefits. So I would come of it from saying, I don't think... I think there's a great swathe of people who shouldn't be uh, parked on benefits, not because they don't genuinely ha- have a, a, an issue, but because actually we should be able to provide the sort of health support, mental health support, that means that they can work. And, you know, also employers have a role to play, she flippantly says. Um, employers do have a big role to play in this. But I, but I think I think there is a challenge here where we shouldn't be seeing the numbers grow quite to the extent that they are. And it's extraordinary. I mean, we need to move off this particular topic, but um, the growth in particular younger people on on these benefits has been really staggering. And this used to be set of benefits essentially for people, particularly men over the age of 50, and it's now right across the age distribution and particularly... Who'd done manual uh, labour and, and, you know, that was basically what this was. Yeah, it's nothing like that now. Yeah, And even even children, because children can get disability benefits, I think for... Children amongst in the, in the early teens, it's like six percent of them get disability living allowance, which really, yeah, really quite similar. We should we should we should move on to the other topic I want to, to get onto specifically, which is that the recent days there's been discussion about whether the chancellor can fill some of his fiscal hole by not increasing some of these or benefits in line with um, inflation uh, next. Um, next April, uh, inflation clearly currently running at ten percent, and it's been floated. Uh, that maybe they should rise in line with earnings, which are rising by more like six percent at the at the moment. And if you were to increase welfare benefits at that rate, you would save six or seven billion pounds. So that's that's a saving worth having. And the argument those in favour of such a policy would make is, well, if earnings are rising by that, isn't it unfair if people on benefits are doing better uh, than that? So um, is that not a reasonable choice that we could make? So you could so in, normally benefits go up in line with inflation. You could take the view that benefits should go up in line with earnings, and uh, that would mean that you know people who, are, who who get all their money, all their income from benefits, would kind of kind of keep up with um, the uh, society as a whole on average. Um, they wouldn't fall further behind. I mean, so really, and that, that would be kind of that would be another view. I think uh, there's kind of arguments to be had for for and against that. 
if you did do that, that would over the long run mean a much bigger welfare state than what we're actually kind of on track to have where we do price uprating or inflationary uprating. Because on, on the whole, historically, earnings have uh, risen faster than prices. So you could you, you could have this, I think, I think that's a legitimate debate to have. Do you want to rate by earnings or prices in general? What seems to me to be probably something that's not advisable from the point of view of kind of benefit design would be basically having a system where we uprate by the lower of earnings or prices. So if the government would say, no, we're permanently switching from earnings that, to, to earnings, that'd be one thing. But if they'd say, well, we'll uprate by earnings this year, but if next year prices are, uh, earnings going up faster than prices, well, then we'll switch back to uprating by prices. I think if 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 we had that kind of system, that's that would be that's basically what we have for the state pension, but in reverse. Um, so in the state pension rises by the fastest of earnings prices, and um, just for fun, two and a half percent. Whereas here would be moon system where it rises by the lowest of earnings and, and prices. And so that would mean in the long run that um, the size of the benefit system would steadily decline in real terms. So I think that that kind of justification, I think kind of can't make sense. It would just, because in the long run, it would just mean an ever declining size of the benefit system. Um, you might just kind of take the view that, you know, we want to have a smaller benefit system and do li- less redistribution. Again, this, you know, comes back to what we were saying before, that's a political question, moral question, um, rather than a narrow economics one. Um, and obviously at the moment, the, the, the governments, you know, might be particularly looking for, for savings. Um, but I think, yeah, on, on the kind of, particularly on the uprating, uh, the, the, what we want to avoid be a situation where we essentially have a double, a, a reverse double lock, basically. Yeah. So the the, the, the state pension in reverse, the, tri- the triple lock reversed, always do the least generous. Um, I, I, it's hard to disagree with what Tom's saying, isn't it, Charlie? The, the the idea that you pick and choose when you're going to how you're going to uprate so as to make the benefit system almost randomly less generous over time, not least given that the real price-adjusted level of benefits people out of work is no higher now than it was 50 years ago. And I think that is the really important point here, which is that benefits or the the kind of basic level uh, of benefits is so low now. And, you know, we've been actively eroding it for, I mean, at least the last decade because of the um, caps on the rating and also then the freeze. So actually people didn't see their benefits rising at all. And to do the the, the moral bit again, um, what does that actually mean in practice? It means the poorest people in the country are getting poorer. That's literally what it means. And I think it's hard to justify in the middle of a cost of living crisis for a group of people, for many of whom are already in poverty, many of whom are actually in quite deep and persistent poverty, to say, you know what, we've blown a big hole in the public finances by doing tax cuts. We'll just take it back from the poorest. We'll just we'll just not operate benefits uh, properly. And that way, uh, we can save some money and plug that hole. I just I think, again, to come back to my point about what sort of society do you want to live in? I, I think that's a, a I think that's a very unfortunate position to take. What, what, what do you make of the fact that the Prime Minister seems to be at least floating as a possibility? I think that's a great question because I I find it very difficult to understand what the rationale, uh, I mean, other than the obvious, which is that it's worth billions of pounds 
um, what the justification maybe is the, the, the better word to use for you know, ignoring the fact that this is a very poor group of people in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And, you know, they have done some really good stuff around capping energy or reducing energy costs is probably the, what we should say. And, and obviously the previous chancellor um, had a, at the time, a very good package uh, to provide more support for uh, people on benefits. But given where we are, given the numbers of inflation that you've just, um, said paul i i really i really do struggle to understand why the prime minister would even have floated this particularly given that the previous chancellor had committed to uprating by the actual inflation figure and, and let's remember the last uprating uh, has also made uh, these families poorer because at the time at which the inflation uh, rate was taken, which was, was it 3.2% or something like that last September's measure, um, that doesn't come through until April. And of course, by April this year, we were double that. So I don't know what, I don't, I, I genuinely, I can't, I, I can't understand the thinking other than, you know, oh, gosh, we've got a big hole in, in the public finances and, and what's a quick way. And, you know, let, let's face it, Paul, and I say this as someone who spent the first two years of two years and a bit of the coalition in the Department for Work and Pensions um, at the time when we were doing, uh, we were forced to do uh, the austerity measures. Um, it, it is, it is so easy to look at what, as we've said, is actually the biggest budget. You know, the DWP is the biggest budget, um, including pensions, and to if you need to find very large sums of money quickly, people default to saying, well, we'll just take it out of welfare. I mean, that's what happened during the austerity years. And, you know, when I worked for in Duncan Smith, we fought as hard as we could against the Treasury's desire to do that. But that is the automatic response. So I think it's a lazy response because the numbers are so big. And I think it also ignores, as we said earlier, the potential knock-on impact uh, in other areas of public services. Tom, before we finish, I just want to get on to uh, the last element of this, which is something that you're writing about at the moment, which is that there are parts of the system which are getting less generous anyway, aren't they? Just just thinking about the, the benefit system. That's also true of the tax system. Just thinking about the benefit system. There are several elements of change that have happened over the last few years, which are gradually being rolled out to make the system less generous. And indeed, some parts of the system, which haven't been uprated for prices for a very long time, making it less generous. Could you just, just take the listeners through that a little bit to understand how, over time, there are these elements which are, uh, as I say, becoming less generous? Yeah. So in terms of, there's a couple of policies which are essentially being slowly rolled out. Um, and I think probably the most important, yeah, most important ones would be firstly, universal credit, um, which now most um, working age benefit recipients uh, are on universal credit. There's still at least a couple of million who are on the old style of benefits and they need to be moved across. They'll be moved across over the next couple of years, current plan. For some people that represents a 
again, they'll they'll see an increase in their, their benefits. For other, others, they'll they'll see a decline. What's more unambiguous is is the rollout of uh, what sometimes be called being called the two child limits. So if you're on means tested benefits, you now don't get any extra support for third and subsequent children. Each child um, get, gets an extra three thousand pounds or so in benefit entitlement, but that only kicks in for children born after 2017. So as every year passes, there's more children basically that were born after 2017, and so it slowly rolls out. Uh, to to them, so I think those are probably the most important benefit reforms, and that that second one does really does mean quite large declines in income for poor families, and by definition, poor families with lots of kids, <laughs> uh, and so it it it's quite it does quite a lot to raise uh, child poverty rates. At the same time, we have, as you alluded to, the fact that various parts of the benefit system have just been frozen in cash terms, sometimes for a long, a long time. One of the ones we found was the the Christmas bonus, which is paid to pensioners and disability benefit recipients, which has been ten pounds since 1977, uh, over which time prices have more than quintupled. So, you know, I don't know back then, maybe you could get a. Christmas tree for ten pounds or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, and so that, that you know, that, that in some sense is a slightly silly example because it, it's a very small benefit. But it, it shows that if if you just leave things frozen in cash terms, it, they really it is really worth less and less and less um, over long periods of time. One that's more, definitely more important would be the benefit cap which was uh, brought in in 2013, it was reduced in 2016, and then has been frozen ever since then, and, and is, you know, on current plans will be frozen indefinitely. And so that means that for some people who are out of work, there's a maximum amount they can get in benefits. And so even when the, the main elements of benefits go up, people who are subject to the benefit cap see no change in their income. And so we're just talking about, you know, will benefits go up by prices or earnings or something. If you're affected by the benefit cap, uh, on current plans, your benefits won't go up at all and even whilst you know inflation's running at 10 percent, and so that's and how many people is that affecting so at the moment it affects something like one hundred and twenty thousand. but because inflation is so high at the moment uh, it looks like that might double just just over the next few years to about a quarter of a million households uh, so we're not talking about extremely large numbers of households but it does for those effects it's it, it represents a really quite large decline um, in income and again that that's you know that's just over the next few years. The longer that this is left unchanged, the more and more people it will affect and um, uh, uh, reduce their their real uh, their real incomes. Last word, Charlie. Oh, uh, make sure you uprate benefits by, by inflation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a very clear, a very exactly. clear message. A very clear message to which I'm sure the Chancellor will be listening. Let's hope so. Carefully, um, we have almost certainly run over our time. That's been a fantastic discussion. At the beginning of this, we thought we might cover taxes as well, but that was clearly far too um, ambitious. We've we've barely done justice to the benefit system and just the working age part of it at that. But you will have gathered from this discussion that this is a big system. It's a complicated system. It's a system, as we've said, which picks up the pieces that failure right across the rest of society uh, leaves behind. And it's a system which I think, to to paraphrase what uh, Charlie Pickles has been saying, needs a fundamental look so that we are doing more than just giving people enough to survive on, but helping them up through to improve their health, to improve their employability and get them off benefits in the longer run. And that's a big big issue. Uh, But given where we are, 
This is not a generous system for most people who are subsisting on it uh, and cutting it by something like 5% as uh, increasing benefits only in line with earnings uh, next April would do uh, looks a very difficult ask indeed. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you so much, Charlie. And thank you, uh, everyone who has been listening to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. Some of what we were talking about there are going to be published as part of the IFS's forthcoming Green Budget, funded by the Nuffield Foundation and City. To see more of our work, do visit www.ifs.org.uk. And to further support us, do consider becoming a member for as little as £5 a month. See you next time.